So I'm going to start reading from verse 16. It says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She, brought, she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. This scripture that we're going to read today is two stories, but it's really one story. It's the story of how Paul and Silas ended up in prison, and it's the story of how worship broke them out. But what's interesting about this passage is, in starting in verse 16, it's actually contrasting two different ways of worship. It's contrasting two different forms of freedom. And it's contrasting two different motivations or spirits by which someone can worship and praise the Lord. The thing that gets them thrown into prison is bringing freedom to a young girl who is demonized. And you know she's demonized because she says demonic things like, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. How demonic does that sound? It's disgusting, right? Wait, what? See, the first surprise is that the woman, the young girl who's demon-possessed, who has a spirit of divination, and who is being profited from, profited on by her slave owners who are using her to give fortune readings. This young girl is following Paul and Luke and Silas as they go through the city, and she's like their herald, saying what at first glance looks like the truth. But this is strange because it's actually worship from a demon. I was at a youth conference one time where a preacher preached a message called uh, Worship Like a Demon. And they were talking about how it was, they, to they took us to all the parts of the Bible where a demon gave God praise. And they said, this should inspire us on how to worship. We should worship like the demons worship. And I think they were, you know, when you preach to youth, you've got to be, you've got to have a little edge of controversy in you. You've got to have a little you got to have a little, something that goes against the grain. Either that or you have to put it like a, like a funny word in your message to help the kids remember. So I think that's what this person was trying to do. But I would just like to suggest to you that you shouldn't worship like a demon. I know, you've come this morning for hot takes like that. But here's the weird thing. If a demon is saying this sort of thing, what is so wrong about that message? What gives Paul the awareness that this girl is in bondage to a spirit. We talked a couple weeks ago about the nature of the devil, and I'd like to expand on that a little bit and talk about the nature of the demonic. The demonic always operates in either a motivation of accusation. We talked about that, right? We talked about how the word, the Satan, it's never a proper name. It's only ever a role. It means the adversary, right? So when Peter says to Jesus, I'll never let them crucify you, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, he's not saying, Peter, you're the prince of darkness sent to persecute me. 
He's saying, get behind me, you adversary. He's saying, Peter, you've become an adversary to me. You're going against my purpose and my calling and my mission. And so the demonic always operates in a spirit of accusation by which we assign blame, we move into a place of judgment, and we bring about condemnation so that we can be right and others can be wrong. We can feel righteous and they can be unclean. We can be in and they can be out. And then by doing so, we feel a temporary sense of peace because we figured out who has the problem. But the problem is, our problem isn't the problem. And eventually, we're going to need to drive someone else out of the community because it's too much for us to deal with the issue in our own heart. It's way easier to accuse and to blame and to project onto other people as the source of our discontentment. But this girl isn't operating in a spirit of accusation. She's operating out of a desire for attention. And this is the other major motivation behind demonic spirits. Demonic spirits are any voice that gets to speak to you before God does. Let me say that again. Demonic spirits are any voice that gets to speak to you before God does. The reason why this, this girl wants and needs the, the attention of the crowd is as we're going to see, she embodies a power or a principality in a region and in a marketplace. And so what is not so important to her is whether or not Paul and Silas get to speak what is important to her is whether or not they get to speak first. Now, when I say her, it's really the spirit that's motivating her. And I, I wouldn't hold what she says or what she does against her because she's a slave girl. And we're going to talk about that. But she's demonized in such a way that she needs the attention of the crowd. She needs their loyalty. She needs their focus before they are able to hear from Paul and Silas the message of the gospel. And I would like to suggest to you that the way the demonic also works in culture and in our lives is it is the motivating force that demands our attention and our allegiance before we are allowed to hear from God. Let me give you an example. God says to you, I love you, but before you let it sink in, you hear a voice that says, I'm not worthy. Has anyone ever had that happen to you before? I was in a worship service one time here in Saskatoon, and nobody was responding to the service. Like, if they were participating, they were participating in the most hidden, quiet way in the interior of their hearts, okay? I'm not trying to judge them. I'm just saying everyone was sitting down with their hands in their laps, like really politely, and it felt like more of a concert than anything, okay? And then this very, it was a very famous worship band that was putting this concert on, and it's kind of okay if these sorts of things are like shows or whatever. I'm not offended by that. But obviously, I wanted to participate, and it felt weird because there's like 800 people, and we're all just like sitting politely while we're singing the songs that we'd normally sing in church. And it wasn't the kind of church where everyone was like super conservative and quiet and reserved, okay? This worship band has a song where the chorus starts with, I am a sinner. It's like a big, 
big course that they launch into, okay? And it's my least favorite song by this band, even though I love this band and I love their hearts, but that's what they start with. What I was amazed by was this. Six songs, we all sat there. Halfway through this particular song, we all sat there. And when we got to the course that said, I am a sinner, if it's not one thing, it's another, multitudes of people suddenly stood to their feet and lifted their hands and began to cry and sing out with the top of their voice, I am a sinner. And I thought to myself, now again, not trying to criticize the band, certainly not trying to condemn the people who are worshiping, but I thought to myself, is this really worship of the Lord? Or is this personal shame that gets in the way of receiving the love and the identity of Christ? It was also a weird arrangement because the preacher had already preached first. And when the preacher got up, he said, just so you guys know, we're no longer sinners, we're saints. Our identity doesn't begin in Genesis 3, it actually begins in Genesis 1. Before we lost the plot and before we had a fall, we were actually made in the image and likeness of God. And we get to participate in new creation. And this is what he said to everyone, and we all still remained seated. Until the course said, I am a sinner. And then I watched as scores of people stood to their feet and began to cry. Is it possible that we have things in our lives that are motivating even perhaps good and right responses, but they are actually intermediary voices and spirits that get to speak to us before God does? If God says to you, I love you, and you go, I know, but. I don't know if there's anything more demonic than that. This is also important for us to read because we have to remember that in culture, there are people who profess Jesus as Lord, and they're doing it from a demonic spirit. Have you ever heard a Christian say the right things and you feel the wrong way about what they're saying? You're like, technically I agree with all the things you're saying, but there's something about the spirit with which you're saying it. Now I'm not saying that every time you disagree with another Christian, they have a demon. Let me just be real clear. <laughs> I heard it from my pastor. No, that's not true. But I do recognize that there are people who have an inner motivation of the heart that is not actually yielded to the Spirit of Christ and based out of a motive for attention or a motive for accusation, they profess the right thing, but it comes from the wrong place. And a discerning person like Paul hears it and rebukes it. There are people in our culture who claim to speak on behalf of God, and although they speak in truth, they are not being informed by the Spirit. And as such, what they do is destructive, and it's against love. Whether it's a pastor who gets up in the pulpit and who says that their nation has a, right, a God-given right to bomb another nation, that isn't the Spirit of Christ. I'm letting you know that's not the Spirit of Christ. 
or whether it's a pastor who gets up and who uses the Bible as a proof text to bash other people for being sinners, for being wrong. Sometimes we speak the right thing, but out of the wrong spirit. Or maybe I could put it to you another way. Sometimes speaking the truth without love makes it not truth. We are called to speak the truth in love, but if our truth does not have love, it isn't true. It might be factual, but it isn't coming from the advocate, the helper, the Holy Spirit, who is leading people into all truth. Let's keep reading. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate for customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. The powers and the principalities are the spirits that influence the very rich, the very powerful, and the very religious to keep the world the way it is. The powers and principalities are the spirits, the evil spirits, that encourage the very religious, the very rich, and the very powerful to keep the world the way it is. And we see this very clearly in this story. They're in a big marketplace, and one little slave girl who isn't free is proclaiming the message of the gospel to the people before Paul and Silas get to. And Paul discerns the spirit she's operating out of, and she brings, he brings her into freedom. Now, you have to understand, this is not the kind of freedom that I would focus on. I would focus on getting her out of chains, Right? But he brings her heart into an internal kind of freedom, and immediately it breaks the entire marketplace apart. One act of freedom sets everybody else on edge because the very rich, the very religious, and the very powerful want to keep the world the way it is. The demonic is always heard in the idolatry of economy. Nations and empires are obsessed with two things, security and economy. Security is how we justify violence against other humans made in the image of God, and economy is how we justify everything else. Like, yeah, we need to protect the environment. Of course we do, but not at the expense of jobs. By putting economy above everything else, what ends up happening is, is we can agree that the world should change in theory, but in practice, any sort of upheaval of the social system that allows 
Little girls who are imprisoned to get free causes great trouble and commotion in the marketplace. I've told you this story before, but it's worth telling again. I was driving down the street. I can tell you exactly where it is because I'm not afraid of it. I was driving down Idlewild. I was headed south. I just passed the A&W. On the right is a quick loans place. I don't remember what brand it is. All I remember is that for a while they had advertising that was based on Pac-Man. And when I was learning how to talk, he would say, Dad, so many colors. Because there was these posters that were all different colors. And so we'd go, yeah, so many colors. And then on the other side of the street is an adult bookstore. And as I'm driving down the street, I'm looking at the adult bookstore. And I don't know if you've done this, but I've done this. I look at the adult bookstore and I see the cars, right, that are in front of the adult bookstore. And in my... my uh, heart of accusation and judgment, I think to myself, what kind of person would be in the adult bookstore? And then the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me, and he said, which building, which business am I more concerned about closing? The adult bookstore or the check cashing place? I'm really concerned about the kind of hot, immoral the, the hot sins, the immorality that offends my conscience. I'm not so concerned about the economic sins that keep people in the bondage of debt. So a check cashing, cashing place, a, a quick loans place that puts people into debt slavery because they don't have the social structure to support them and to teach them that these sorts of loans are actually predatory and they're going to destroy their lives. That sort of place is more of a blight on humanity than an adult bookstore. Because an adult bookstore brings a broken kind of comfort to people who are already in bondage, but a debt place creates the bondage. And I can drive down the street and I can go, oh, Lord, that you would close every adult bookstore in Saskatoon. And I can totally ignore the economic injustice that actually keeps people oppressed. This little girl probably has a prophetic gift. She probably has a real thing that God has given her. But men saw an opportunity, purchased her, and exploited the, her gift for their profit. How did she become demonized? She became demonized because they've justified how they're abusing her. Instead of being scapegoated, she is now the goose that lays the golden egg. She has a gift, but it's a gift they're profiting from, and they're justifying their persecution and their um, imprisonment of her for the sake of their well-being and then her well-being. And maybe they even go so far as to say that her well-being is tied up in their well-being. We're not really keeping her a slave. It's a dangerous world out there. We're trying to protect her. We feed her. We give her shelter. When I profit, some of that profit trickles down to her. But the way the world is structured never changes. And so how does Paul and Silas, or how does Paul in this case particularly, how does he confront the injustice? He confronts the injustice by casting out the spirit 
That doesn't, I don't think, necessarily take away her prophetic gift, but it does take away their ability to profit from her. And this is what disrupts the marketplace. <laughs> we really want revival and we really want God to transform society until it disrupts the marketplace. And then we discover who we're actually worshiping. Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon. What if a move of God actually costs our economy something? Is it still a move of God? When the Welsh revival happened, when the Welsh revival happened, every bar and tavern had to close because nobody wanted to go there to drink away their sorrows because they didn't have any more sorrows. Drunkenness leads to debauchery. We know this. 70% of domestic abuse cases involve intoxication. Did you know that? So when the bars close, guess who's out of work? The police officers. We like to think about God transforming society, but we haven't yet really considered the price of that. Because sometimes we are okay with the world in its present arrangement. And I'm not saying there aren't complicated things about, whatever, pipelines versus preser preservation, okay? These are complicated issues, and I'm not trying to solve them all in 30 seconds. I'm simply saying that whenever we in interact with society and we want the good news of the gospel to transform culture, it always starts at the bottom with the most oppressed person who happens to be holding up everybody else. The demon spirit within her is the axis upon which the whole marketplace rests. And this is often how the demonic functions. The person we scapegoat ends up giving voice to our scapegoating. Here's another example of this. Can I give you another example? I'll give you a fun example first, because this might all feel a bit, a bit heavy. I was on the internet the other day, and a, <laughs> this, I saw this photo. I, I don't remember, I think it was Facebook or Instagram or wherever it was. It was this photo of a woman, okay, and she had let her dog poop in a McDonald's parking lot. And they had put text above the photo saying, what this woman has done is shameful. Because I think the video goes on, she goes on to like throw the, she like picks it up because they're telling her to pick it up and then she throws it at people. And they, and they put, they put a, a, a phrase above the, above the media. It said, this woman is disgusting. Let's spread this everywhere so that everybody knows what she's like. I'm 20,000 miles away from this woman. Okay, But what's happened is, is we've all got together digitally and we've scapegoated a person for doing the wrong thing. You really should pick up your dog poop and you shouldn't throw it at people, right? These are common courtesies. We're all in agreement. Okay? But I, I have a question to ask you. When we do this to this woman, is she going to get any better? Is she going to get any healthier? Are we going to get any better or any healthier? Perhaps I might be more inclined to pick up my dog poop so that I'm not the next person that gets crucified by an internet mob. That might be the only positive that comes out of this whole experience. But I'm looking at this dog poop lady, and she's screaming swear words, and she's throwing poop around everywhere. And I feel great pity for her. Because whatever led her to this place in her life, 
is only now going to get worse because we all ganged up on her. But what happens is, is because we all turned the lens of accusation against her, she becomes the very thing we accused her of. We need a boogeyman. She becomes the boogeyman we need. Can I give you another example of this from Scripture? Jesus is going through an area called the Gadarenes. Okay? And when he goes through the Gadarenes, there's a story. In one gospel, it's two men. In another gospel, it's one. There's a person who is so demonized that they're naked. And every time this person gets chained up, they break the chains. And every time someone tries to uh, put this person under control, he beats them up. Right? And he's just filled with demons. And he lives out in the, in the wilderness. Okay? Jesus is coming through the area, and this man comes out, and just like the girl in the marketplace, he says to Jesus, Jesus, Son of God, have you come to persecute me before the time? This is probably the most famous story of of deliverance in the Gospels. And Jesus says to the man, what is your name? I personally believe he was saying it to the man, not the spirit. Okay? He says to the man, what is your name? And the man says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Okay? Now, when I was young, I was taught that this was what he said because he was filled with demon spirits. But I'd like to suggest to you that there's something else at play in the story. The area of the Gadarenes was a famous Roman garrison where the occupying troops were stationed. There were legions and legions of Roman soldiers reminding the Jewish people and the Gentiles of the region, because it was a mixed region, who was in charge. And this is a very fragile piece that they have. Later in AD 70, because of Jewish uprisings, Rome will send in armies and destroy Jerusalem entirely. When five, I think it was five, men staged a protest in the temple during Jesus' ministry... Pilate, who was the Roman emissary, sent guards into the Jewish holy place and slaughtered them in the middle of their sacrifices. The Bible says their blood was mingled with the sacrifices of their animals just because they staged a sit-in. So everything is like walking on a razor's edge in the Gadarenes. And the legions of Romans are right here. But you don't dare oppose the people who are oppressing you. And then the people who are doing the oppressing, they're not going around and causing riots and uprisings. So both sides, the powerful and the powerless, are fraught with uneasy tension. These people can't rebel. These people don't want a rebellion. So what ends up happening? A man comes along as the perfect scapegoat for the incredible social tension that is taking place in the region of the Gadarenes. They can't handle the stress and the tension of being under Roman occupation, but what they can handle is a boogeyman who lives out in the wilderness, who's naked, who's more powerful than anybody, who seems to transcend both the people and the Romans who are occupying the region. Now both groups of people have a... uh, a scapegoat to unload their tensions on. And what is his name? His name is Legion. So what ends up happening in this story? Jesus casts the demons out of Legion into pigs, right? 
Do you remember this? And then the pigs go, and they run all the way home, which is off a cliff, right? All that bacon wasted. And what happens in the very next verse? The people of the community beg Jesus to depart, not to stay. You see, they actually wanted him to remain demonized. They were happier when the demons were in the dude and not in the pigs for two reasons. Why? One, first, it was easier to be afraid of a naked dude in the wilderness than massive scores of of Roman military living on their doorstep. Number two, the pigs were their livelihood. And once again, the Spirit of God coming to liberate people disrupts the economy. It's not a blessing that Jesus saved this man's life. It's a curse because I can't make bacon anymore. Like the money bacon and the real bacon. This is why I say that a dim, a, the, demonic, the nature of the demonic is more of a parasite than a person. If you think of a demonic as a floating invisible person, then you might be tempted to come against evil people by claiming they are servants of the dark spirits that, are, that you are assigning to their spirit by your accusation. Let me read that again. If you think of the demonic as a floating invisible person or persons, then you might be tempted to come against evil people by claiming they are servants of dark spirits that you are assigning to their spirit by your accusation. It's easy to say we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but then to say of someone else who is flesh and blood, oh, they're just operating out of a demonic spirit. In fact, that's what they did to Jesus. Jesus is liberating people, and the Pharisees say to him, he is casting out demons by the ruler of demons. Hey, he's so good at casting out demons because he's demon-possessed. It's not Jesus that they have a problem with. It's the demon spirit that's influencing Jesus. That's why we have to be very careful what we assign blame to. Lady Gaga goes down the red carpet wearing a dress made of meat. And some Christians are like, that's so demonic. Is it? Do you really want to say that? I'm not saying we can't identify things that are evil, but we have to be careful that we don't move into accusation and give the spirit to the person that we are accusing of having the spirit. See, Jesus, when they tell him, you're casting out demons by the ruler of demons. Jesus doesn't get demonized because Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the spirit of advocacy. He ends the cycle of accusation. He's not interested in their attention, and he's not interested in the demons' attention. This is why he tells demons to be quiet, because he's not interested in demons praising him. He's not interested in winning a short-term battle and losing a long-term war. There are Christians who are like, oh, it would be so good if celebrities were to to talk about how much they love Jesus. That would really help us win culture. Jesus doesn't need a PR team. He's not in a cultural battle. Most of the work you do to tear down oppression in the lives of other people is going to be quiet and hidden work. Jesus and then Paul always start at the bottom with the person who is the most oppressed and bring them into freedom in spite of the fact that when that person comes into freedom, it disrupts the marketplace of the rest of the culture. 
This girl is freed from her spiritual torment, but not her physical slavery. But now that she serves no economic advantage to her masters, the whole relationship between spirituality and profit is broken. And this turns the city toward violence. They need to make Paul and Silas the new scapegoats. But Paul and Silas are also filled with the Holy Spirit of advocacy. This is why the demonic that leads people into bondage is always present wherever spirituality is monetized. The demonic is always present wherever spirituality is monetized. For only three payments of $34.95, you can get the deluxe New Age crystals that you saw on PVC to clear your home of negative energy and only bring in peaceful chi. For only $22, you can buy the oil from the Valley of Hinnon that the televangelist prayed over, and that will be the key to your breakthrough. Many economies, spiritual ecosystems, Christian and otherwise, are built on the idea that you can purchase your freedom. Paul doesn't ask the girl to pray a sinner's prayer. Jesus doesn't wait for legion to give him his allegiance. They bring the oppressed person into freedom without charge. The gospel is good news, not a good offer. People who are suffering, people who are struggling, people who need breakthrough, they deserve to have the Holy Spirit of advocacy touch and change their life for free. And sometimes we're the most guilty of attaching monetary value. I don't just mean money. I mean sacrifice, effort, determination. If you just worship a little harder, that will be the key to your breakthrough. Will it? Or does it create an economy of exchange where I think I earned my freedom from God? See, that's what a city is. A city is a system of relationships built on economic exchange where relationship is not necessary. You do not need to be friends with the cashier to get her to total and charge you for your groceries. You give her your card or your money and she gives you the groceries and you never have to see one another again. You could hate each other's stinking guts and it wouldn't matter. The city would still work. Now, if you're on a homestead or if you're in a village... Or if you're just in a family, it doesn't work that way. How many of you have ever hated your mom or your dad and had a peaceful and pleasant supper? It doesn't work. Why? Because the, the relational harmony transcends the economic necessity. After Cain killed his brother Abel, he went and founded the first human city. What is the Bible trying to teach us? The Bible is trying to teach us that matters of economy, matters of economic exchange, where people are trying to get ahead and make their lives better and make their families better through giving and through taking, through buying and selling, they always lead to forms of demonic oppression. This is why Jesus comes into the temple and he says, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of thieves. Is the problem that they're selling stuff in the temple? Is that the heart of the problem? 
Because if you think about it, if people have traveled from Egypt and from Macedonia and from wherever else to come to the temple and make a sacrifice as they are commanded to, they're not going to bring the sacrifice 20,000 miles. The little lamb and the turtle doves die on the way. So when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to need to purchase something. So it only makes sense that if these people need to purchase something, that they do it at the doorway when they come into the temple. But here's the problem. The problem is the entire sacrificial system is built on the exploitation of desperate, hungry, and hurting people who want to be brought into freedom and who think they need to purchase it. And for as long as I'm sitting outside the temple selling people goats and sheeps and turtle doves and a DVD series of five different keys to your breakthrough and some oil that came from the Valley of Hinnon and whatever else you could market to people, I'm participating in their oppression. The message of the gospel is that God brings you into freedom. God wants you to be free for no other reason than you deserve to be free. Not because you earned it or you paid for it. Because he loves you, because he created you in his image, and you don't actually have to do anything to deserve it. He just makes you free. She deserves to be free because she is loved, not because she is useful. Let's continue to read the scripture. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Oh, this is such a cool passage. Paul and Silas have not committed a crime. They brought a little slave girl into freedom. And by bringing a little slave girl into freedom, they're the ones that get put into chains. But what I often have done is I have made this passage into another form of economic exchange. I have made this passage about how Paul and Silas worshiped their way into freedom. I do believe that worship brings people into freedom. And here's the cool thing about this story. It doesn't just bring Paul and Silas into freedom. Worship brings into freedom every other prisoner in the prison. So you're singing, then sings my soul. My Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. And you're just singing it from the depth of your soul. And the person beside you is on Facebook, totally locked up. But your song brings them into freedom. Okay, (laughs) I can feel the Spirit of the Lord here, and I can feel how true this is. It's resonating inside of me. This is rubbing people the wrong way, and I have to keep going. You're participating. They're not participating. You're moving into freedom. They're totally bound. But your song unlocks their chains. Now again, I have to be careful here because what that could be interpreted as is worship until you get free. Worship becomes the new form of economic exchange. If you're not free, you better worship harder. And I grew up that way. I grew up singing the song we sang this morning, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And I grew up hearing preachers say, there's not enough freedom in the room. Press in, press in. But I have good news for you. Paul and Silas weren't worshiping God because they wanted to be freed from prison. 
Paul and Silas were worshiping God because they were already free on the inside and they didn't particularly care about their external circumstances. Paul and Silas weren't worshiping God because they knew God would unlock the doors. Paul and Silas were worshiping God because the kind of freedom that was within them could not be put into chains. Do you know what the first revelation of God was to the Israelites? It wasn't creator. God did not first reveal himself to be their creator. The first revelation of God to the Israelites was as their liberator. God brought them out of slavery and through the exile and into freedom. And this is still the first place God encounters you. God is your liberator. And here's the interesting thing about God as a liberator. He is just as much, if not more, concerned about the freedom that comes to your heart as he is about the freedom that comes to your life. He is just as much, if not more, concerned about making you free on the inside before he makes you free on the outside. He wants to make you free on the outside. Please, please understand this. He wants to make you free on the outside. And sometimes he makes you free on the outside first. Like he took the Israelites out of slavery, but they still were like slaves for at least 40 years in the desert. They made a 40-day walk into a 40-year pilgrimage. Why? Because they were free on the outside, but they were not free on the inside. God wants to liberate you, body, soul, and spirit. Not because you've done anything, not because you're useful, not because you have pressed in, not because you have earned it through your praise. He wants to make you free because you were designed to be free. Because relationship needs freedom in order for it to flourish. If God wants to have a relationship with you, then he needs to make you fully and completely free. Free from the kind of spirits that get to speak to you before he does. Free from the circumstances that keep you in physical chains. Free from the emotions and the thoughts that plague you. Free from the tendencies, addictions, and habits that keep you bound. Free from the judgment and accusation that keeps you focused on other people instead of on yourself and on him. But God wants to bring you into a kind of freedom that is so strong and so resonant that you could physically be locked up in a prison on false charges. And the first thing you actually want to do is worship. Because on the inside, you're free even if you're not on the outside. And what ends up happening is we've accidentally, because we've partnered with the gods of economy, we've created an environment where people are free on the outside, but they're not free on the inside. People come into church, and they sit bound up, even though they're completely free. No one's telling them what to do. No one's controlling them. But they're locked up on the inside. Please understand this. I am not saying that you have to respond outside a certain way. I'm saying the exact opposite of that. You're free. <laughs> you don't come to worship to get free. You worship because you are already free. But I do, and I, I say this because it's my own personal experience. People will sit in worship services and they'll go, yes, I can't dance. That's just not my personality. Is it not your personality or are you struggling with insecurity? I'm, I'm being serious. Because I was. 
I'm just not that kind of person. I'm just reserved. It turns out I'm not reserved. I was just ashamed. I was ashamed because I saw other people moving and being free with their body, and I didn't feel free with my own body. So I rationalized the prison of my heart as a personality. (laughs) And this is often what we do with our personalities. I'm just angry by nature. Are you angry by nature? Are you really? Or have you rationalized and internalized your own bondage? See, the Lord is your liberator, and he's bringing you into emotional health and physical and spiritual freedom. He's not doing it at any kind of charge. He's never going to send you the bill. But it takes a journey of growing in your awareness that some of the things you're struggling with and some of the things you've internalized aren't actually from God, and they're not actually part of you. They're the bondage God's leading you out of. And how do you discover that? Because again, if I've made my life the way I think it is or the way I think it's supposed to be, if I've internalized this idea that I'm a slave even when I'm free, it's going to be really hard for me to see how God is liberating me. It took the Israelites 40 years in the desert. It took Paul and Silas all of 30 seconds. So what sort of environment makes me aware of the God who is liberating me? It's the environment of worship. Again, I do not worship because I am earning God's freedom. I worship because it makes me aware of the liberator who's bringing me into freedom however he can, as fast as he can anyway. So if you're like me and you sit out every wedding, every worship service, saying to yourself, I'm just not a dancer, that's just not who I am. Maybe God is the God of freedom who is making you into the dancer you always were, but were too ashamed to be. And maybe it'll take him like 40 years. Maybe it'll only happen after you die. Maybe we'll get to heaven and find out that you're just like, woo! like, wow, I've never seen you this free. I know! You know how this really happened for me? This really happened one day when um, Justin Timberlake's, I know, the Spirit of the Lord moved for, through, the, through Justin Timberlake. I did say that. That is the kind of church you're in, so. Justin Timberlake's song for the kids' movie Trolls came out, and, and it's called Can't Stop the Feeling. And he goes, nothing I can see but you when you dance, dance, dance. Okay? So this song came out. I thought it was super catchy. And I wanted to dance to this song. Now, please understand, I had figured out in my teenage years how to dance and worship. White people jump like this on the spot. <laughs> I'll become even more undignified than this. It's like a simple river dance, like no kicking, right? You just <laughs> jump on the spot. Christian moshing, right? And I, it's not all about dancing, but I hope you understand, dancing is a metaphor for everything else. So I'm in the car. And I want to dance. I feel the desire to dance. And I'm too self-conscious in the car to move my body. And the conversation I've told myself and the personality I've internalized is, I'm not a dancer, I'm a drummer. I don't enjoy the music, I make the music. This is what I tell people. I'm in the car and I hear the Holy Spirit say to me, I want you to dance to this song for as long as you want to keep it on. 
And I was like, oh, please don't do this to me. Please don't do this to me. But I knew it was the Lord, so I rolled down the windows, and I turned up the volume as loud as I could, and I danced in my car all the way into the city for about 45 minutes. I'm in the sunshine, and I'm sweaty, and I'm at every stoplight doing this. And people are getting their phones out, and they're videoing me, and I'm like, this is for you, Jesus, because I feel so uncomfortable. And it's like full dad dancing. At no point did I become in any way sexy or attractive. My body never did what I wanted it to do, right? People were laughing at me. But here's the thing. I was free. For the first time, I actually felt free to enjoy myself and to not feel like I had to listen to the voice of shame and the voice of insecurity before I got to listen to the Lord. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. <sighs> Supposing that the prisoners had escaped, but Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his whole family. Then he brought them up to the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The kind of freedom that God is bringing you into is the kind of freedom that even when your physical circumstances change, you are willing to stay in your unlocked cell for the sake of your jailer. Let me say that again. The kind of freedom that God's bringing you into is the kind of freedom where you are willing to stay in your unlocked cell because of your jailer. I hate my job because my boss is so miserable. What if, what if you're there because they're miserable? You feel like your job is prison? What if you're called to save the jailer? Like, what if you're the most free person in a miserable workplace? And what if when the jailer realizes that you could have walked out of this place the whole time and you chose to stay for them? What if that's the love that brings them into freedom? See, because the jailer is part of the same sort of economic bondage. The jailer is stuck because the jailer's got to make sure all the prisoners are trapped. And when the jailer thinks that the prison doors have opened and everyone's escaped, what does the jailer want to do? He wants to kill himself. His life is over. It's better for him to take his own life than to suffer at the hands of the Romans. But when Paul says, don't worry, we're all here. Who is finally free? The last person to get free is the person who was oppressing everyone else. God doesn't just want to bring freedom to slaves. He wants to bring freedom to slaveholders. He doesn't want to just bring freedom to those who are lost in debt. He wants to bring freedom to creditors. The only way the kind of people who do the oppressing get free is if the people who are unlocked from their selves stay in their selves for the sake of love. Paul and Silas determined in their heart that they would not leave until everyone is free. And that included the jailer.
Worship is submitting your life to the liberation of love. You don't define yourself anymore. You don't suffer under hidden patterns of economic and spiritual exchange. You no longer try to form your own life while still paying your dues to the powers and principalities. Instead, you let love free your heart and mind and body in whatever order love wants. I'd like to end with one of my favorite stories, the story of Ernest Gordon in his autobiography, Miracle on the River Kwai. He was a soldier who was taken prisoner by the Japanese in World War II. And in Japanese culture at the time of World War II, surrender was a form of cowardice. And so the prisoners that the Japanese captured were treated as less than human. They were hardly given food, any kind of nourishment. They weren't given proper sanitation. And many people considered the Japanese POW camps to be the worst conditions of any place in World War II. Okay? Ernest Gordon was captured along with another man named Dusty Miller and a third man whose name I forget. And he recalls that the two men, Dusty and this other man, were Christians. And one day, when they were being forced to build a train line because the Japanese were considering invading India, they were told to go back and make camp. And one of the guards counted the shovels and found one missing. He said, one of you has stolen a shovel. And they need to confess who they are right now and die. No one confessed. So the Japanese guard screamed, okay, everyone dies. Everyone dies. And this Christian man stepped forward and said, it was me. I stole the shovel. And he was executed on the spot. When they returned to camp, they recounted the shovels and realized that the guard had made a counting error. The Christian man volunteered to sacrifice his life for the sake of preserving the lives of everyone else. But when he sacrificed his life and died for nothing, it caused a revolution of love in the camp. The Japanese realized, the Japanese guards realized that they had neglected to see the prisoners in their midst and who they really were. And they discovered that they had philosophers and linguists and intelligent men of renown in their midst. And the relationship between the prisoners and the prison guards in that particular camp was transformed overnight into a mini society of human flourishing. At the end of World War II, 13 languages were being taught and spoken in a war camp. There were lectures going on on philosophy and economy as prisoners and as guards formed a new kind of community based around the self-sacrificial love of someone who was willing to die so that everyone could come into freedom. Ernest Gordon's other friend, Dusty Miller, was crucified one week before the war ended by one of the guards. And when the war was over, the rest of the prisoners, before they were left, led away in their liberation, chose to wash the feet of their prison guards. The last thing that happened before the camp was closed was that the prisoners washed the feet of their guards. 
They said, what we need now is love. What we need now is freedom. And what we need now is forgiveness. We worship not to get something from God. We worship not to make something happen. We worship because we realize that God is the God of liberation who is freeing you, body, soul, spirit, mind, and heart, not just for your sake, but for the sake of everyone around you. Not just for the sake of those who are suffering, but for those who are making the suffering happen. When you worship, you become an epicenter of cultural transformation. When you worship, you become the place where God brings freedom to everyone else. This is what we're doing here. This is why we gather together. This is why we spend so much time and energy and effort. This is why I get sweaty and stinky week after week. <laughs> this is why every time Justin Timberlake comes onto my car, I still, nothing I can see what you, when you dance. Because you know what the, the thing that I realized? The person who's filming me might be making fun of me, but they're also kind of secretly jealous of me. Because freedom becomes contagious. It either releases other people from their bondage or at least it makes them aware of it. And I want to live a life of self-sacrifice where I lay down my own reputation, my own identity, and my own personality, and I become a place where others become free. And that only happens when I worship the God who is the one true liberator. He's the one true place where everyone else gets to be free.